Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclough. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. So let's continue on. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. We're leaving behind the Sabbath day, the, the, the seventh day, and we're now moving on to verse 4. So here's a new section in the Genesis narrative. What, what, uh, what, what we're going to see is we're going to go back into the creation week now. Some people have postulated that this is an entirely separate account, and some people have even tried to suggest that there must be two creations, which is <laughs> foolish and ridiculous. But what, what, what we're doing is we're not going to go back into the second, I'm sorry, we're going to go back into Genesis chapter 1, and he's going to draw some of the details that we didn't see in, uh, in chapter 1. So verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was growing up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man from the dust, or formed the man, excuse me, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Pause before we get to verse 8. So we see God creates man, and the Hebrew word for man here is Adam what we typically think of as the first man, Adam. That's actually not his name, per se. Uh, the Hebrew word Adam simply means human. Human. It's really ha-adam, meaning the, the Adam, or the man. The ha in Hebrew is the definite article the in English. And there's actually a play on words in verse 7 in the Hebrew. We don't really see it in English, but when the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground, ground is the word Adamah. So the Lord forms the, uh, the Adam from the Adamah. This this idea that the Adam, or the man, is kind of this earth earth creature, or, or dirt creature, or dust creature, right? Because he's formed from the dust. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and fit for food, and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pause there before we get to verse 10. So God, God plants a garden, east in Eden. So the garden is in Eden. It's not actually, the garden is not called Eden, but there's this land of Eden. And God puts a garden in the eastern part of Eden. And he puts man in there, and there's all these plants. Two of those plants or trees are the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says this is good. God says everything that he created is good. And I say that because I've, I've heard some people suggest that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually a bad tree. Right? It's not a bad tree. It's a good tree. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there, divided, and, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is, is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and of the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
if there's rivers flowing out of this garden, then that must mean that the garden is high. It's in a high place. In fact, I, I believe that the Garden of Eden is on top of a mountain. That's important because if you examine sort of mountaintop theology, or you look at mountains in, in the Bible, what usually happens on top of mountains? What happened on Mount Sinai? Fire, yeah. Moses met God on the top of a mountain. What happens... I don't ever remember the name of this mountain, unfortunately. But in the New Testament, where Jesus and and uh, Peter, James, and John are invited uh, with Jesus to go up on a mountain, and he's transfigured, the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't remember the exact name of that mountain. But uh, he's transfigured, and Moses and Elijah show up, and there's this amazing scene, right? There's this communion with God that happens on top of the mountain. Oftentimes throughout Scripture, you see that people climb mountains to commune with God. The idea is that God is on top of the mountain. If you're going to be where God is, you have to go on top of the mountain. And that's not just typical of Christianity. That's typical of most world religions. Uh, we'll see when we get to the Tower of Babel story that the idea of creating the Tower of Babel that goes to the sky is they're really trying to make a mountain. Let's build a mountain or a ziggurat or a pyramid kind of thing because then we can, we can be like God up on top of that mountain. We could sort of call God down and make him do the things that we want to do. So th this is very typical of most, most religions because it's, it's the truth, right? This is true, and Christianity is the true religion, and every other religion is a, is a false copy of Christianity. So because the rivers flowed out of Eden, they flowed down, meaning Eden is up on a mountain. And what we see in the Garden of Eden is God communes with man on top of this mountain. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the man is the word Adam. The Lord God took the Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, the Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of, but of, the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What does God say here? God puts the Adam, the human, in a garden to do what? To tend it, yeah. So there's this idea of work. God puts Adam to work. work. Work is a part of humanity. It's a part of the natural created order. You know, work is not something that Adam then has to do after the fall, right? Uh, work is something pre-fall. It's pre-sin. So work is good. Right, that we are creatures that engage in work is a good thing. Um, unfortunately, because of the fall and the introduction of sin and death, work becomes a lot harder. But uh, it's actually a good thing. So God gives Adam a job to tend the garden, and he puts he puts him in the midst of the garden, and there are trees in the midst of that garden. You got tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what does God say about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat of that tree. And what's the reason that he gives? You shall surely die if you eat of that tree. Now, what is going on here? I think a lot of people have taken this and sort of misinterpreted it or misheard it from Sunday school class. And it's this idea of, and the day of you eat of it, I will surely kill you. And we have this idea of punitive justice. 
that if you eat of it, God is going to become angry with you, and he's going to have to judge you, and his justice and wrath is going to come upon you, because you broke his rule. I don't think that's what's going on. I think instead of, I will surely kill you, I think it should be, it will surely kill you. And we're missing that T on that I. We need to add that T. And the day you eat of it, it will surely kill you. What's going on here? Well, first off, it never says, I will kill you. It does not say, I will kill you. God does not say, I have to kill you if you break my rule. So it says, you will surely die. You will surely die. So that statement, or whoever teaches that, you, you shall surely die. Why? It's not because God's going to become angry with you and then have to kill and have to kill Adam. It's because there's something about this tree that will kill Adam if he eats it. What is it about this tree that will kill Adam if he eats it? It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I do not think, and I'm, I'm not alone on this, by the way, but I, uh, there's there's a handful of people that, that do agree with me. Some of the church fathers agree with me. I say that because what, what I'm about to say may sound strange. It may be something that you've never heard before. But I, I, I'm very fascinated by this idea that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, remember it's a good tree. God said it's good. But God says don't eat of it. I think that there would have come a time when Adam and Eve had been allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of evil, just not yet. Now, why is that? It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as we know, raising young children, sometimes kids don't need to know everything right away, right? They have to grow up and mature. There's this idea of maturation, and eventually we'll have those harder conversations with kids. Conversations that involve good, conversations that involve evil, conversations that help them to grow in wisdom. But right now, they don't need that. Similarly, if, if I gave my, my, my four-year-old son a knife, and I said, go have fun with this knife, what do you think he would do? He would probably really hurt himself with a knife, wouldn't he? A knife in the hands of a four-year-old is dangerous. He's only going to hurt himself. He's going to bring harm to himself and to others. But a knife in the hands of a 15-year-old, well, there's a lot of good that can come from that. A 15-year-old can take a knife, he can whittle something, he can carve something, he might be able to cook food with that knife and, and open packages. It, it, it becomes a helpful tool and a good thing in the hands of a 15-year-old, but it is death in the hands of a 4-year-old. I think that's what's going on with the, knowledge of, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil here. God says, don't eat of it, because in the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, that would have eventually been revoked as Adam and Eve had grown up and matured. You have to remember, Adam and Eve are going to be tending the garden, and not just the garden, but they're eventually going to break out of the garden as, as humanity grows and as they're fruitful and multiply, and they're going to go into the wilder lands of the world. They're going to need wisdom to know how to how to take dominion over these wild lands. But they're not there yet. They're not there yet. So what we'll see in Genesis chapter 3 is when Adam and Eve reach out to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eat from it, they are grasping at something prematurely. 
They're grasping at something prematurely, which is oftentimes what sin is, isn't it? Especially thinking of sins that a lot of teenage boys fall into, you know, especially with women and things, is they, they, they grasp at, at, at some of these pleasures in life uh, a little too early before they're ready for it, you know, and they end up making a mess out of their life. If they would just wait till they got married, then, then they would be able to enjoy the fullness of marriage rather than as a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kid shacking up with all these girls and, and just making, making a mess of themselves. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, of you, the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Verse 18. Then God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Let's pause there. This is the first time that we hear that God says something is not good. All throughout Genesis chapter 1, at the end of every day, God creates the thing that he creates. He says, this is good. Day 2, God creates the thing he creates. This is good. Day 3, this is good. Day 4, this is good. So on and so forth. Now God says, this is not good. What is not good? It is not good that the man, or the Adam, should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So not only is God is Adam given the job by God to tend to keep the garden, he's also given a job to name all the animals. Whatever he names the animal, that is its name. See, Adam is, is sub-creating with God, right? God's, God's the creator. Adam is made in the image of God, and part of being imaged in God is he is a little sub-creator. He's taking dominion over his little piece of property by naming things. And this is what God told him to do, right? And it's, it's fascinating that God didn't name these things. That he, he gives, and they belong to God, right? They are his. God made them. God made the zebras and the elk. He made it all. But then he says, Adam, I want you to name these things. Now that's that's a that's a, a wonderful picture of trust between God and man. And God can trust man because man's perfect at this point. In naming things, uh, Adam is taking dominion over them, and Adam is worshiping God and bringing glory to God by naming the thing the exact name that it should be named according to how God created it to be. As Adam names all the animals, he's realizing that he doesn't fit with any of these animals. He's realizing that all the animals, that there's a boy and a girl animal, there's males and females, and he's probably looking around thinking, we got boy lions and girl lions, we got boy zebras and girl zebras, we got boy cardinals and girl cardinals. When I look at myself, there's only one of me. There's not two of me. What's, what's the deal? I don't understand what's going on. So God is teaching Adam. Remember, Though Adam is created to be fully fully a man, like he's a grown man at this point, he's not a child, he still has the, the, the mind of a child. Not the intellect of a child, he's extremely intelligent. But he's got to be grown up and matured. He's experiencing all of this for the first time, this, this creation. He's, he's brand new to this world as well. So the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So what's this sleep? 
You have to be pretty asleep for someone to cut you open and rip out a rib, don't you? I mean, this is like, this is some serious good drugs that got put Adam on, right? This is the picture of death sleep. It's almost that Adam dies. Now, he doesn't actually die, but it's a picture of death. Adam goes down into this death-like state. God opens him up, and he plucks a rib out of his side, and from the rib he fashions a woman. And then God closes up the flesh of Adam in its place. So Adam is now awakened. So Adam is sort of coming back to life. And now he's going to see this woman. Okay, so what's what's the idea of death here? The idea of death is, a death for, for Christians is, is an idea of glory. Uh, because when we die, we are glorified. We're, we're in Christ. That's not the end of us. We die, we will be resurrected at the end of time. When Christ dies, he went into the grave. He was resurrected in glory on Easter Sunday. Um, every day of the week, day one through seven, is a little death at the end. You know, evening and morning, first day, you know, the sun goes down, the, the earth kind of dies, and then the sun comes back up and it's life again. Even in the year, you know, we have this changing of the seasons. The earth goes through this sort of death cycle every year as it goes into winter, and then it comes back alive in the spring. We humans follow that exact cycle. The seven-day week, we follow a 24-hour day. We follow the cycle of the earth because we're made of earth. We're made from the dust of the ground. That's what we come from. And, and, and I find it interesting. In the French Revolution of the, what was that, 1700s or 1800s, right, right, right about that time period, they tried to get rid of the seven-day week because that was seen as an oppressive religious idea. Does that come from the book of Genesis? And they instituted a 10-day week. Guess what happened? People went crazy. People went crazy because they couldn't do a 10-day week. They can't do a 10-day week because they're not built and created from a cycle of 10 days. Humans are built and built from a cycle of seven days because we're made of earth. We're made from the earth, and the earth runs on a seven-day cycle. That's what God God created it that way, right? So uh, I think that was fascinating that the French Revolution, you look at that, we just humans just couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. God takes this rib and he makes this rib into a woman and brings her to the man. Then the man said, and I want you to keep this idea of glory in your mind. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold, to his, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So let's talk about that. Remember, I said, keep the idea of glory in your mind. Adam dies, he wakes up, quote, I'm using air quotes, he's brought back to life, so to speak. He goes through this picture of death, and he receives a woman. What does Paul say in the New Testament that is the glory of man? You remember? Woman. Woman is the glory of man. Paul even tells, Paul says this in one of his epistles. Woman is the glory of man. So Adam has been glorified with this woman that has brought that has been brought to him. He is now like the animals, like there's boy animals and there's girl animals, there's male and females, and, and now there's male and female of humanity as well. And I want you to notice that the way God created the Adam, the man, the human, it's like he created him first and then he split him in two. He created humanity, and then from his rib, he fashions the woman. Adam himself or the man, I should say, because we're not actually named. The man himself is created from the ground, 
the woman is created from the man. And I think that's a picture for us on uh, Jesus and his church, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. The Adam, all throughout this whole section, has been called the Adam, the man, the Adam, the Adam. The Adam did this, and the Adam did that, and the Adam did that. And here, in the Hebrew, we actually have a different use of words in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of Ish, man. Now there's a differentiation of genders. There's a differentiation between man and woman. Before it was kind of generic, the man or the human. And now there's a differentiation of genders. So just like God created everything before in the first week, he creates it and then he separates it. I'm thinking like on day two when he created the water. He creates the water and then he separates the waters below from the waters from above. The waters below come the seas and the waters above become the firmament. Similarly, he does that with humanity. He creates the human, then he separates it into male and female, into ish and isha. And, and even in Hebrew, there's there's a there's a, a play on word with the word uh, ish, uh, which is similar to the word ish, I think it is, which is the word fire. And this idea is, is that he's now glorified, he's fiery, he's set on fire, because he now has bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's a completeness now between the man and the woman. Any questions about that? Thoughts, reflections? We're going to move on to one more thing, and then, and then we'll be done. Chrissy, do you want to say something? Oh, just a comment. Oh, we've been, no, it was a Bible... Study. It was a it was a Bible uh, study we did when we were at um, uh, church in Hartford, Open Doors. Yeah, uh, one of the pastors, and it was uh, reflect back to when uh, Eve was made. Mm -hmm. And uh, now she's not called Eve yet. I do want to point that out. Okay, she's wow. called the woman. When she's the, not when named woman, when the woman was until made. until after she gives birth, and then she's the only one that's named. When the woman was made, was they actually it wasn't God that created. Well, some scholars believe it wasn't God that created the woman. That it was actually Jesus. Because okay, well Jesus, Jesus is God. But yeah, because so it was the fact that hands were laid on Adam to do the cutting, and it, he. I'd have to go back to my old phone. I'd, yeah, I'd have to go back to my yeah. old phone and go through my notes. So, so that's 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 interesting. I've never heard that interpretation. Yeah, but I, I'll try to watch it. But yeah, it's I'll try to find my notes. It's compelling because. Throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, we are some so so think of Mount Sinai. If you remember your Mount Sinai story in the Book of Exodus, mm -hmm. we see that uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, and it says that he talks with God as a as a friend talks with a friend, face yeah. to face, yeah. face to face with God. Then, uh, like a few verses later, maybe it's a few verses prior, he asks God to see his face, and God says, "If you see my face, you'll surely die." Mm -hmm. So you're like, well, which is it? Mm -hmm. You know, is he seeing his face or is he not seeing his face? The answer is yes, because of the doctrine of the Trinity that we know. So, so it's it, there's this idea that's that's already in the Old Testament that you can't see the face of God the Father because if you see the face of God the Father, you will surely die. Yeah. But if you see the face of God the Son, who becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, yeah, and, yeah in the Gospels. And yes, you can see that face, and that's how we see God talking. That's how Moses is able to talk to God as a person face to face, as a friend talking to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 it was the, the yeah. whole the whole 
thing is about Jesus and similarity between Jesus and Moses, and, yeah. and, and about that. About yeah. How the it's Old a very Testament, interesting study. Yeah, and it, it was about how in the Old Testament, that uh, whenever God was on earth, per se, it was actually Jesus yeah. that they saw. And yeah. the, 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 the pastor, he was um, he was a historian, like, all about, like, just doing historical research. Interesting. Yeah, it was very, I, I enjoyed it because I love, I love Yeah, that looks great. And so I was going back. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very much an Old Testament idea. Mm-hmm. Even the Jews believe, the Old Testament Jews believe that there is a plurality in the Godhead. Right. You know, they, they would say, yes, God is one, because we're taught that God is one. But even within the one God, we know that there is something going on. Yeah. You know, there's two or three persons. They didn't use the word persons. But there's a plurality within the, the singular God of two or three. And we know with the, uh, with the, the revelation of the New Testament in Jesus Christ, we get a firmer idea that it is actually three. And then that doctrine of the Trinity is solidified in the first couple of centuries of the church. But it's very much a biblical doctrine, even all the way back in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's a, I mean, it's even in Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth is not born and void, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. There's the Holy Spirit right there, right? Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit's hovering over the waters. God the Father speaks, and what does he speak? He speaks words. Mm-hmm. John chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is active in creation. We don't get that full view in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, but when we take all the Bible and we're able to piece it together, put it together, then, then we get a, a full view. So, last thing I want to talk about before we're done is this idea that, that the rib was taken out of the side of the man. And from the rib is fashioned the woman. That has connotations to Jesus and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, so we're just in 1 Corinthians, after 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and then it's uh, Galatians and then Ephesians. Well, this is the wives submit to your husband, husbands love your wives section. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, we're actually going to skip down and jump to verse 25. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, that's reference to baptism, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Remember, Eve was taken out of the body of Adam. For the man to love his wife, or for Adam to love Eve, is for Adam to love his own body, because she's made from him. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and he reaches back to Genesis chapter 2 for this, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You may say, hold on, I thought you were just talking about husbands and wives, but you're actually talking about Jesus and the church. And the answer is yes. He's talking about both. He can't talk about the relationship between husbands and wives without also talking about the relationship between Jesus and the church, without also talking about the relationship between Adam and Eve. 
because it's all tangled up together. Uh, really, Jesus, and in other places in Scripture, the church is called the bride of Christ. You know, the question is, was Jesus married? The answer is yes, Jesus is married to the church, right? So each one of us is, is corporately a part of that bride, the bride of Christ. And if, and if Adam is, uh, if, if Jesus is the last Adam, then we are sort of the new Eve, so to speak, right? So, so we are a part of this church. We are part of the bride of Christ, which means the church was taken out of the side of Christ. Now, if you remember what happened on the cross, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, after he died, one of the soldiers stabbed him. Remember where they stabbed him? In the ribs. And what flowed out from the wound of the ribs? Water and blood. Blood and water flowed out from the side of Jesus Christ. A lot of the, uh, the early theologians and church fathers will talk about how that blood and water is actually a reference to the sacraments, to blood being the sacrament of, of wine and the sacrament of, uh, of Holy Communion. And the water being a, a direct reference to baptism. And so through water and blood, or baptism in the Lord's Supper, we are, we are brought back to Christ. We, we, we are fashioned into the bride of Christ, which is his church. You know, this is, of course, all, all by faith. And, and uh, by faith we are baptized and united to Christ and his church. And then, and then we partake of Christ's own flesh and blood through communion. And that is already pictured when Jesus is stabbed in the side and blood and water flow out of his side. Just like Eve was fashioned from the rib of Adam, the church is fashioned from the rib of Christ. Because of what we see between Jesus and his bride and the church, that's the reality in marriage. Human marriage here on earth is the reflection of the true reality of Jesus and his bride, the mystical union that Jesus and, and the church share with each other. So this is why when Adam and Eve come together, the two shall become one flesh. This is why when husbands and wives come together, the two become one flesh. And much the same way, when we are united to Christ by faith, we become one flesh with Christ. We are brought into that corporate relationship with his bride, the church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about the building of church. I'm talking about the people, the people of God. We're, we're united to his bride, the church, who was taken from his side. This mystery is profound. And even Paul, I love Paul says, this is a mystery. That doesn't mean that it's a riddle that can't be solved. But that means that there's so much going on here that we'll never be able to plumb the depths of it. We'll, ne we'll never be able to exhaust everything that can be said about the mystical union that Jesus has with the church. Likewise, we'll never be able to exhaust sort of this one fleshness that a husband and wife experience together. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, closing... Back where we started in the book of Genesis, let me just read those last few verses again. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And we'll talk about shame next week. The first emotion mentioned in Scripture, and a very powerful one. Sin makes us ashamed, and I 
dare say that because we're all sinners, we all carry a little bit of shame with us. We'll talk more about that next week. So let's conclude there. Are there any final questions or thoughts? All right. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.